This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaign's church politics podcast with Justin Gibney, aka Bishop Cooper's grandson, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, how are you doing? And uh, what what's new in your space, brother? I'm doing really well. The rest of my space, I'm going to mention that maybe like two episodes from now was really new. Other than that, things are swell. Two episodes from now. Now, now I'm intrigued. Y'all got to come back and, and hear what's happening two episodes <laughs> from today. Why one one or two. One or two. We'll see. One or two. Okay. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. So we got some news coming from you. You know, one of the things that's been great for me and, and just really made my day brighter and just beautiful was summer comes and there's no more Lakers. <laughs> and we don't even have to talk about that no more. I mean, there's no dark cloud hanging over the NBA and wondering who's the GOAT. Now, we know the GOAT is MJ, for anybody that had any questions. Will this team, who didn't really do any anything during the regular season, gets lucky in one or two series in the, in the playoffs? And now they're gone. And we can just focus on, yes, Denver had a setback this last game, but we can focus on Denver winning this championship and moving forward. And so for me, that's what's new. That's what's bright in my world. You know, it makes our country in general a brighter place because we don't have people just pushing these falsehoods about fake goats and all this other stuff, man. So that's what's been good for me. I don't know. We we might, though, be looking at the secret son of the real goat running around out there with the uh, with the Miami Heat. So we'll say that again. We'll have to see. We'll did you to mean see. to say goat or did you mean to say something else? No, I mean, th- as a person from Chicago, I'm not even from Chicago. As a person from Chicago, the only goat. No, I said the secret son. Sin of, if uh, Jimmy Butler is Michael Jordan's secret son. No, I'm, I'm going to put the end to that right now. No. We're going to have to go on the uh, Mario. But look, but here's Chris. Let me release everybody from all this. We can talk about good players. Like everything don't have to be about who's the GOAT. No, no, no. This Let's guy, he's nowhere close to the GOAT. No, we're not putting him in that conversation. Let's not even talk about it. Let's not even bring the name GOAT up. Let's we're say, just, hey, is Jimmy Butler the son of somebody good? Or well, somebody really good? Or somebody in Hall of Fame, but not the GOAT. All right. I just want to keep the GOAT out of some of these conversations because I, I just think the name is used. We we throw it out there too easily, man. That's that's all I got to say about that, man. Well, we'll see. we'll see. I'm gonna watch. I'm gonna watch Jeremy. See if, if MJ shows up at a game, sitting in the back rows. Then we then we'll we see, know. I, I don't. I don't see the relation. I don't see the similarity. But hey, Jimmy Butler can play ball. You don't think they look alike? No, I don't see the similarity in the game. But I I can see some some uh, paternal questions. 
I'll have to look again, but I, I, I didn't see it originally. Well, I want to I want to remind everybody that you need to check out our Invisible Institution newsletter. We had one that came out last month. The June edition is on its way. So you want to check that out. But also go to our to our website to see the How I Got Over docuseries, which is about the role that the authority of Scripture played in the black church and its music in the establishment of the black church and even in its social action. It's a uh, we have four. It's a five part documentary, but three parts are up right now and there's another one coming within the next week or so so y'all be on the lookout for that if you haven't checked out that documentary you tripping you need to go check it out also go to instagram or youtube and check out our new whole life project video a lot of people like that video you need to check it out it's different we are changing or correcting the narrative when it comes to abortion so check that out man we got to think through this and not just listen to talking points Well, as always, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, which is the Fester Institute for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. And also give a shout out to all those people that are patrons on patreon.com slash church politics. Look, this content takes time to put together. We put a lot of work into it, do a lot of research, put a lot of thought into it. It is not easy. Uh, Chris, you know, he got a lot going on, has other things he could be doing. Please support us because when you support this podcast, you're supporting the movement and we greatly appreciate it. All right. So without further ado, you know what it is. Grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. I want to start off with some scripture, if you don't mind, Christians. And it is Romans 13, verse one, which says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Chris, I hope you know this, because if you don't know this, then I don't know why you would be part of the AND campaign. But government is God ordained to establish order. We serve a God of order. Now, what that doesn't mean is that every government is godly. Okay, so let's be clear about that. But according to folks like St. Augustine, the primary purpose of government is, number one, order, safety, and then some would say justice. Nothing else we enjoy, Chris, is really available if those aren't established. Okay, now here's the tension. God also compels us to challenge unjust and immoral authority. So one say one on one sense, we are to submit to governing authority. In another sense, if that authority is immoral and just, we are to challenge it. We see this in Amos. We see this in Jeremiah. We see this in Isaiah and so on. And I want you to keep that tension in mind as I talk about a battle that has been going on in the city of Atlanta, at least in the city of Atlanta government for a couple of years. You see, earlier this week, the Atlanta City Council voted 11 to 4 to invest $30 million in a police training facility. The full amount of the facility, I think, is around $90 million, and the majority of that will be paid by the Atlanta Police Foundation. Now, opponents of this training facility have called the training facility Cop City. And just an inside thing, this is very smart because anytime that you want to go up against something, you can rename it and that allows you to create a narrative around it. Just a technique that people use. All right. Now, I'm going to say this, Chris. These opponents have been very, very active. In fact, I would go so far as to say, I don't know that I've seen since I've been in Atlanta an initiative 
where the activist groups are so persistent and so energized. I got to give credit where credit is due. They are about that business. They've been on it for a minute. I think that I actually read, Chris, that they broke a record for public comment earlier this week. 350 people signed up for public comment on this one issue, and only four of them were in support of the legislation. That's serious. Public comment lasted for 14 hours. Again, I don't think I ever saw anything like that when I was at City Hall and I saw some pretty crazy stuff. It is remarkable. The authorities had to barricade City Hall. They didn't know, you know exactly what was going to happen. I heard some employees might have actually went home early. It was serious business and they knew it was about to go down. I mean, that is is good organization. Right. Even if I don't agree with all the tactics that they use. Now, people were against this for different reasons, Chris. Some would say they were against it for environmental reasons, like they were moving a lot of trees in a very forested area. Atlanta has a lot of tree cover, and I think people rightfully want to preserve that. I get it. I ain't mad at that. Other people thought that the money shouldn't be invested in the police, but should go to other community projects. Okay, that's worth looking at. I mean, that's worth raising that question. But even prior to to the day of the vote, things became deadly, right? You had Manuel Tarrin, who was shot and killed by state troopers while the opponents of this uh, legislation were protesting at the proposed construction site. Now, law enforcement is saying that the protesters had set up kind of like booby traps. I don't know if that's the, the technical term for it, but they had set up booby traps in that area and that Tarrant actually shot at them first. So that's what the authorities are saying. Then the Georgia Bureau of Investigation arrested three of the opponents on fraud charges and they they weren't playing. They went in there heavily armed and, and went in and got those folks. Some people were saying it was too much. I'll let you be the judge. Now, some of the speakers doing public comment told the city council that supporting the training center was basically sanctioning police violence against marginalized groups. They said it was militarizing the police by creating a training center. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, Chris. I, I don't I don't understand that because one of the main complaints coming out of some of the racial violence that we saw in the past few years was that officers were poorly trained was that officers were making bad decisions that were costing people their lives. Now we're saying investing in training them is also bad. What the mayor and what the city council people who voted for this were saying was that this facility is needed for better training for existing officers and also for recruitment and retention of officers. Crime is a serious issue in the city of Atlanta, and we have people saying, no, we don't want police to have better training. Now, we can talk about the money. I do think the administration hid some of the costs early. Those costs came out later. I don't think that was good faith. I, I think they should have done that differently. But are we really looking at the situation that we have in this city, but in a lot of other big cities as well, and saying we don't want our police to be trained better? We don't want to make that investment? Chris, I think the root of a lot of this is the same kind of defund the police mentality. It's the abolition mentality where we say, you know, we don't really need police. We don't really need prisons. The idea that crime would somehow stop and go away if no police were there and we just focused on poverty. I, I hear a lot of people because there is a connection between people being in poverty and people and, and being desperate enough you know, to commit crimes. I'm not going to deny that connection. I think there is a connection there. But the idea that if you got rid of police, you would cut down, especially on violent crime, 
is just ridiculous. It has no, there's no proof to show that. And even more than that, Chris, we talked about this before. I think it really shows a misunderstanding or a naivete about human nature and why people sin and why people hurt each other. I don't know about you. I'm kind of getting sick of people blaming all crime on poor people. Most poor people do not commit violent crime. Most poor people are not criminals. And so before we even know who committed some, we're automatically saying blaming it on poor people. No, some people commit crimes because that's what they've chosen to do with their free will. And they're going for their interests or maybe they do have other issues going on. But we can't just simply say, hey, don't fund anything for the police. Let them go untrained or let them not be there at at all. And things are going to just get better if you invested in other places. I'm all for community investment. Let's do that. Let's push them to do that. But I don't think it has to be community investment versus training the police who, if you talk to a lot of poor people who might not have been there, want the police because they know that there are people in their environments and in other environments that will take advantage or be even more violent if the police aren't around. That's the truth of it. Now, I'm going to pass it to you, Chris. The last thing I want to say, though, is I saw this tweet that said this, that basically there was no democracy in the city of Atlanta because the public commenters uh, who were against the project had way far more people than the folks that spoke against it. I see where they're coming from on that, but I would push back just a little bit. Number one, we have we live in a republic, not a direct democracy. So while I think it is important that they brought so many people to the public comment, while I think that should matter, and I'm glad, I mean, this was 14 hours. It was it started at one o'clock and then ended at like 5:30 the next morning, right? So shout out to the Atlanta City Council for allowing that much public comment. That is important. But we also have to understand this has been going on for two years, and these are people who have been talking to their constituents who even if they weren't there, they've had those conversations. And there's a lot of other people in the city that might not have been represented by that one group that decided to come in in big numbers that one time. So just because you have more people in public comment doesn't mean you should win the conversation, especially when I think the cause really doesn't make a lot of sense. And I don't want to see Atlanta turn into what we're seeing in the Pacific Northwest, where this exact framework or this exact philosophy is being tested and failing miserably but go ahead chris i just have to say i'm i'm also glad that we're talking about these kind of crazy issues in your city and not mine i think you said a, a lot of things correct i was trying to find i felt like this was initially approved in like 2021 right yeah i mean there's been different iterations of it but the but the actual passage for it to get funded with these numbers, I think this is the first time that's gone through in that way. This is the first time for that. It, so was was this like a an electoral was it an issue in the elections? Because I know there was like an election. Yeah, yeah, no, it's been talked about for a while, and it's been you know they've been trying to get it through, and this was the big vote though. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think on the democracy piece, which is probably the the biggest place where I come down on this, because I think people have a right to protest, but this was a fairly one sided vote. You're supported by the mayor. It's coming on the other side of an election where this was already a big part of the election. And one thing I have to say, you know, in Chicago, the the folks who kind of take that more abolish the police approach did what you're supposed to do in an electoral democracy in Chicago. And they went out and won an election. Right. They they got their folks in in the mayor's office. They got their folks in the city council to say that, like the 
I, I believe in public comment, right? Don't get me wrong. I think we don't do enough of it in a lot of spaces. But public comment is not the best sort of evidence of democratic opinion. I remember when I used to work in, in schools of education, one thing I used to always say to school districts is that, you know, that six o'clock, you know, on a Wednesday night is great, but a lot of parents six o'clock on a Wednesday night are doing homework, bath time, trying to get their kids in the bed, right? So that's not always going to be the very best representation of what people are thinking. And I urged the school districts to do what you talked about. You got to go out and actually talk to folks. And I, I think a lot, of, I can't speak for any member of Atlanta City Council or the mayor, but I think a lot of politicians, because they are invested at, at minimum, because they're invested in their own reelection, do try to talk to people, get some kind of sense of what's going on in their communities. So you did your public comment, you do your thing. When elections come around again, you can try to weigh in in that place. What I would really urge is when I was reading some of the, the coverage, and I'm, I'm not there, some of the comments from some of the folks during the public comment section, especially with the violence that preceded, when you sit up there and say, well, we're not going to let this go, and this thing is never going to be built no matter what, blah, blah, blah. Like, we don't live in a system that says that you can do whatever you want to do to stop, you know, this thing from happening. You can protest, you can do your thing, but you can't be out there setting booby traps, having, you know, kind of violent opposition to something that has been approved by democratically elected. And this is the thing. I'm glad you brought that up because I meant to say something about that. So Chris is talking about after this was passed, not only were these folks cussing out the threatening the council people, they were saying this will never be built. Now, they could just mean that we're going to keep fighting and we're going to persuade you to <laughs> pull back this legislation, or they could have meant that they're going to really stand in the way of this. And to some extent, they still have the right to do some of that as you know, civil disobedience. But at a certain point, somebody's already gotten killed over this. Be very careful what you use and what you think you're going to do to stop this from moving forward. And you, know, you always have the issue of how many people are actually from here and all those other things that go into what people are actually doing with the public comment. Now, I want to be very clear before we get out of here. Public comment is important. It can change. It can rightfully change someone's mind if you make a logical case and you, you know, and you do it very clearly. Right. It's real. But to say that d- democracy wasn't served or there is a miscarriage of democracy because you had the most people and they didn't change their minds. Eleven council people said yes. I'm not sure that some of those other council people weren't let off the hook and, and and went against it. But if it was closer, might have actually said yes, too. So you never know. That's a that's a big spread. Valiant effort. You win some, you lose some. And yeah, so, it, you know, we'll see what happens. But it certainly wasn't necessarily undemocratic. Anything else, Chris? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's the that's the big takeaway for me is that, you know, I, I believe in protest, definitely believe in, in public comment. But some of that commentary was a little it caused a question to me especially against the backdrop of some a man already losing right. his life uh and, and all right we will be right back on the church politics podcast are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives as a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. 
the end campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. As many of you know, when we talked about last week, it is Pride Month. And while many of us don't celebrate Pride Month or many of us think it does include things that we see to be sin and shouldn't be celebrated. I know, at least for me, I do acknowledge that community. And I do think that Christians should approach the conversation as neighbors, as peacemakers and as truth tellers. And so I think we should keep that in mind, even if it's something that we don't really get involved in. Well, Dr. Russell Moore, who is now the editor of Christianity Today, and I actually had a chance to be on his podcast yesterday. I think it's coming out later this week or maybe early next week. But he wrote an article in that publication entitled, Don't Pretend the Ugandan Homosexuality Law is Christian. The tagline was, not everything that's a sin is a crime, let alone one punishable by death. He starts by talking about how Senator Ted Cruz was attacked from the right. Yes, Senator Ted Cruz attacked from the right for saying that Uganda shouldn't criminalize homosexuality and execute gay people on Twitter. He says this at issue is a harsh new law signed by Uganda's president that would not only outlaw homosexuality, but also mandate conversion therapy type rehabilitation for gay people who are arrested and require a kind of surveillance culture in which citizens are criminally liable for not turning in people they know to be gay. But most chilling of all, the law would impose the death penalty on categories deemed to be aggravated homosexuality. Moore basically says after that that he believes homosexuality is a sin because he is an orthodox Christian and because he believes in the authority of scripture. And for that same reason, he sees this law as wrong. It was interesting to me, Chris, that so many folks on social media had a problem. And y'all forced me to agree with Ted Cruz is, is rough. But, but so many folks on social media had a problem with Ted Cruz saying that this law was bad. I don't, I'm not sure I, I get that. You know, some people, you know, pop up and they say, well, the, you know, the Bible in Leviticus says this when we're talking about a certain point in redemptive history. Right. And we're talking about what God is saying to his people. But the Bible also says a lot of sexual acts are bad. The Bible says a lot of things that we do are wrong. Are we OK with that same result for us? Because I can tell you in my past, if, 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 if that was maintained, then I wouldn't be here right now. Right. Uh, and so we don't only think things are right or wrong because of what ha- could have happened to us. But sometimes it helps us understand and not be so hypocritical. We can stand on the historic Christian sexual ethic and say that a law like this just has no place. It's a human rights violation. It's not OK. Now, I don't think we should stand there and say, well, because we're in this tough battle and we feel threatened that we can act like 
this is something that should be supported. Now, I'll, I'll be straight up. This is a one African country, right? It's not all of Africa that's that you know that's going along with this. But I, I think in on many issues, the African church and in, in, in certain certain denominations, the way that it stood up against the West on some of these issues have been right. In this particular instance, I think they've gone way too far and that, and it's not okay, right? So I can't just choose a side because I see what's wrong with the West and see what's wrong with the mainline church that's basically going along with anything secular progressivism wants them to do. And I don't know, I can't name the last time that they stood up and told the left that it's going too far. But I can't, just because I see that issue and that error, take the side of anybody that's against what they say. This this is this is just plainly wrong. Chris, anything to add to that? I will say that uh, I I would urge people to go read that article from Dr. Marvin. It just it, it almost reads like a sermon. I was I wanted to say amen a few times when I was reading it. And especially during this month when a lot of us are going to be interacting with people around this conversation, both inside and outside of the church. I thought it was just a very well-written article. If you want to be equipped with some language and some thinking and some orientation to engage around this issue, I would urge reading for that purpose. There are probably not too many people listening to this podcast, I have to believe in my heart, Justin, that would actually argue that it is good and right to arrest to surveil and on occasion to execute people for living a homosexual lifestyle. You you don't have to affirm that ethic in order to understand clearly that this type of activity is wrong and you know and that there is some there's some responsibility incumbent on the Christian to say something about that. And again, like I understand folks, even folks in the United States who may not feel like there need to be like these proactive protections for LGBTQ communities who may feel like existing laws already protect those communities in a sufficient way. That's a the discussion argument that can be had. I understand that some people might just maybe don't feel like they want to comment, might not even be aware of like the laws that are happening in Uganda. But it goes to the point that at any moment where we say that somebody's basic sort of civil liberties, it's okay to violate them because of their sexual orientation. That is just not backed up by the scripture. And if you're talking about a proactive violation, right? Like, I don't think there's a, we're not responsible to necessarily advocate for these proactive protections if we're convinced that existing law already protects people. But if there is proactive law that proactively and aggressively is like harming people, if it were happening, like if this were in in a United States context or in any local community, I would say not only is Dr. Moore right and Ted Cruz you're going to hear this on the Church Politics Podcast right now. Text Cruz is right. Um, but I would say that there'd be a problem if the church weren't saying something about it, right? So we, we just have to get this. I would say one other thing. I, I hope that it also at some point writing like what you have in Christianity Today right now, this conversation we were ha- that we are having right now, hopefully it begins to reach also on the left so that people can understand that just because I'm not affirming of that of homosexual lifestyle, I don't you know, we're not going to do a, a wedding uh, in my church. That does not equate to being an advocate to uh, violate civil liberties, to arrest, to surveil, to execute, that type of thing. So it, it sort of cuts both ways. I thought it was a very important article. I urge people to go. Yeah. And just realize, man, this isn't a words or violence situation. This is violence. 
this is state sanctioned violence. That's not okay, man. So we want to make sure that we're never silent about things like that. Uh, we may have our disagreements, but we love our LGBTQ neighbors uh, and, and hope for their flourishing. And this does not fit what we see Jesus doing. I mean, the adulterous woman or anything else, this is not does not fit that model. So we want to be very clear about that. And we will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. You got Justin Gibney and the right reverend, Christopher Butler. We, we, we talk about how we need to listen to people who we may not agree with on certain things, right? And I found that Jonathan Haidt, who is a atheist, is someone who obviously I have some serious disagreements when it comes to theological issue, but someone that is very intellectually honest and makes some good points. Uh, and I think it shows us why there is common grace and why Christians do not have a monopoly on all good ideas or, or all that's right. And so I really do enjoy talking about his articles. He has an article, a new article in The Atlantic magazine, basically saying that all schools should be phone free. He says this, he says, more American schools, arguably all schools, should make themselves into genuinely phone free zones. How would that look in practice? I think it's helpful, he says, to think of phone restrictions on a scale from one to five as follows. So, Chris, he says level one on taking restricting phone use, he says, would be that students can take their phone out during class, but only to use it for class purposes. Level two is this. He says students can hold on to their phone, but are not supposed to take it out of their pocket or their backpack at all during class time. Now, someone tells me those first two sound good, right? But if they're accessible, it might not be so easy. Level three, he said, phone caddies in classrooms. Students put their phone into a wall pocket or storage unit unit at the start of each class and then pick it up at the end of the class. So he was he was saying that these three levels seem to be ones most commonly employed by schools today. So those are the top three of folks who restrict phone use at all. And one thing I was interested in, in hearing and reading during this article was I always wondered why kids need phones in school at all and why don't they just automatically restrict it? But he explains that a lot of parents are saying that they need to talk to their kids, access to their kids during school. The parents are standing in the way of them actually learning. And I, I don't think we even have to explain the article explains it. Hopefully we don't even have to explain why this might be a distraction and why this might add to people phone addiction and add to, you know, and add to even some of the psychological issues that we're seeing with a lot of young people. So those were the first three levels. That's what most, you know, most schools are doing that are doing anything here. Are the here are the next two levels, the final two levels, lockable pouches. Students are required to put their phone into their own personal pouch when they arrive at school which is then locked with a magnetic pin, all right? Students keep the pouch with them, but cannot unlock it until the end of the school day when they are given access to a magnetic unlocking device. And number five, phone lockers. Students lock their phone into a secure unit with, a, with many small compartments when they arrive at school. 
They keep their key and get access to the phone lockers again only when they leave school. He ends by saying this. All children deserve schools that will help them learn, cultivate deep friendships and develop into mentally healthy young adults. All children deserve phone free schools. I'm with them. I'm I'm with level five, level four, whatever we got to do. I'm 100% with that. There's no, I mean, what happened to just call? If you really need to get in touch with your kid and there's an emergency, call the school. What good, I mean, what good is it doing for you to be talking to your kid after each class or whatever? Like, it, it just doesn't make any sense. But Chris, what are your thoughts? I know you're deeper into the education game. Yes and no. I mean, I, I, I think that one, you know, I, I think I'm, one, I'm, I'm a big believer in letting schools operate at the school level as much as possible. But on a on an idea basis, I try to be like super reserved because I know at some level, like we're like old men here. But I was talking to some of the some of the kids around here at the church super recently, just about like, and I think Justin, like millennials, we're, we're the last generation who actually had the experience of like waiting for your parent, right? Like, so your parent gets off of work, you're off of school and there's this window of time where like you're waiting for them. Like they're somewhere in the world, but you don't know exactly where. And you just kind of watch cartoons until they get there or pick you up from grandma's house or whatever it is. You always are able to reach your parent now like because your parent has a cell phone. But I was just trying to remind her, like there was a time when you didn't have a cell phone and, you know, you just kind of hung on. Like, I, I, I remember 9-11. I was at school on September 11th. And, you know, a lot of folks were, like, calling the schools. Very few kids had cell phones at the time. And a, a major thing like that, we made it through. So I, I think that it would be helpful for students. I am very concerned about what the phones are doing. I have a daughter who is turning 12 this year and wanting to get a phone. And so my family is working through that. I think if schools were better partners, I will say this with parents and, and parents better partners with schools on the idea of of kind of creating some kind of safe zone in life. And I think school would be an ideal place. And I'll, I'll finish with this. There are a lot of places right now. Yeah, like if you if you work at FedEx, you can't bring or like Amazon, you can't bring your phone into the building, right? Like as a locker outside the building, you cannot bring your phone into the building. And so people do this and don't die right now. So something to to consider. That's good. So what I'm hearing from you is number one, it should be a local issue. It shouldn't be like national legislation. I agree with you. There is is a local decision. Do you agree that the phone should there shouldn't be phone access? Yeah, I mean I agree. I mean I I, I just. I try to be sensitive because I understand that I am not like growing up in this world right now, but I can't figure out in my mind why you need a phone in your hand. And I don't see how it's making you more safe. Like maybe you feel the parent might feel like they're making their kid more safe. I don't think that it is, especially when you in anything that happens like this, even if we say there's competing goods, I don't see the other good. But if there, even if we were to say these are competing goods, if you balance it, the long term benefits of not being distracted while you're at school and not being addicted to being on social. You know what I'm saying? Like the long term benefits, learning how to be without your phone and not look at it for six hours, I think far outweigh any potential benefit that people might see that you get from this. I don't know. I mean, I, I am a dinosaur, so I, I will admit that. 
let's lose the phones. We'll do it locally. The kids, I believe you will, will soon learn that they can survive without their phones. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for joining us. As always, Ann Camp, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses that love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. Well, how let you? Dear Lord. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.